Good morning. Will you pray with me? Lord, would you prepare our hearts to hear your word and obey your will through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Today's scripture reading is from 1 Peter, uh, verses, chapter 3, verses 8 to 9 and 13 through 18. Finally, all of you, live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Who is gonna harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear, do not be frightened. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Chloe. If you're uh, new or visiting, a special welcome to you. I hope you um, feel at home this morning. My name is Chris. I serve as the pastor here. We've been thinking this fall, and today is the last day of this series, about the intersection between our faith and our work. Our faith and our work. And as we've said, work, the way we're using the word work or defining the work is a very broad meaning. We're defining work as basically anything you do that's not rest or recreation. So of course, if you work a nine to five, then you're nine to five, that's your work. That much is clear. But, but this is more than just that. If you're a student, then your work, in a sense, is school. If you are a stay-at-home parent, then your work is changing diapers and it's play dates and it's PTO meetings and everything that comes along with that. If you're retired, your work is the busyness of being retired, as I'm told. So it's, it's helping take care of the grandkids and it's going, to, it's going to appointments at the doctor's office and volunteering if you volunteer somewhere. All of these things can fall under the category of work. We know this because the, the modern idea of a nine to five is exactly that. It's a modern idea. In fact, it's a result of it's kind of post-industrial revolution. Certainly when the Bible authors were writing the Bible, a nine to five did not exist. Work was just kind of life, most of life in fact. And this morning we're considering the final domain express our faith through our work. In some ways, this is the most obvious. This is probably the one that most of us think about first, which is why I'm covering it last. It's the most obvious. It's also, for many of us, it's the scariest. It's the one that gives us the most anxiety. We're talking about being a messenger of the gospel. The simple way of saying that is talking about Jesus. And that makes us tense up. Even right now, maybe you're feeling a little bit tense all of a sudden when we talk, just by talking about talking about 
Jesus. That's getting kind of meta. And we're taking our cues this morning from 1 Peter chapter 3. Now, this is the same. This is written by Peter. This is the same Peter from the New Testament. So the brash, boneheaded follower of Jesus um, that we read about in the Gospels is who writes this letter. And he's writing to early Christians addressing the question, how do you express your faith in a world that's not very friendly to your faith? You can understand why that's a fitting and appropriate message for us today. How do you express your faith in a world that doesn't seem very friendly or open to your faith? And in this section in chapter 3, Peter teaches us that one of the key ways we express our faith is through our posture in the world. This is how he starts in verse 9. He says, don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. In some ways, this is what Peter starts off by talking about the same thing we've been talking about for the past five weeks. You know the, the song, um, I, I thought it was an older song than it really is. It, it's not that old. Uh, but they'll know we are Christians by our love. We sing it here every now and then. Right? There's something about just our, our actions and our love that communicate something about our faith. Or like the old saying goes, actions speak louder than words, and we all know that. We've talked about this, and the whole series so far has been, how do, we, how do we act like Christians in our workplace? How do we model godly character, we've asked? How do we be a mouthpiece for truth and for justice, and how does that reflect the heart of God? How do we minister grace and love over and above what's expected in our workplace? All those things. How do we just, how do we just make good work? And we saw that even just by, by working well, by working diligently, by not slacking off and by not cutting corners, we honor God. All of those things, all of those actions matter. And that's what Peter is getting at in the first part of this little section. He says that your actions matter. It's related to a, a famous, a well-known saying that goes something like this. Maybe some of you have heard it. Maybe some of you have said it. It goes like this. Preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words. Maybe you've heard that. Some people think that that phrase comes from the Bible. It actually doesn't. It's nowhere in the Bible. It's probably coined by St. Francis of Assisi, which is about uh, 1,200 years after the Bible was written. And it's a phrase that, that at its best kind of expresses what we're getting at, but it can also be dangerous. And as we start getting into it, I want to point out the danger of the phrase, but let's start with the help. It's helpful in reminding us that our actions matter. They really do. That if we act one way and if we speak another way, there's an obvious incongruity between those two. The danger of the phrase lies in the second half, the part that goes, if necessary, use words. Because what that implies is that maybe it's not necessary. It implies that we can actually share about Jesus without using words. And I'm afraid that so many of us hide behind that phrase, preach the gospel always, if necessary, use words. I'm afraid that we hide behind that phrase because we're afraid of using words. We're afraid sometimes to talk about Jesus. So this morning, we're actually going to dig really into the, the fear. What is it that keeps us from sharing about, as Peter calls it, the hope that is within us? Because there really is no way to preach the gospel without using words. 
This is where that phrase is dangerous. Preach the gospel always, if necessary, use words. So I, I would just ask, how do you explain the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus the Christ without words? Our actions can point to the good news of Jesus. They can echo the life of Jesus, to be sure. But they can't really tell of the good news of Jesus. The word gospel means good news. Let me just ask you this. How did you learn the news this morning, if you, if you learned the news this morning? It was through words. Guaranteed. You listened to a podcast, which is what? Words. Or you turned on the news, the morning news, and you watched the news anchors do what? Say words. Or you, you, you opened the newspaper, which is what? Words. Or you fired up your smartphone and you, you, you launched the Apple News app and, and it was full of what? Words. You cannot learn the news without words. Preach the gospel always. Yes and amen. If necessary, use words. How about when necessary? use words. And there almost always comes a time when it's necessary to use words. So this morning, because I know even just this sense can make us tense up a little bit, make us nervous. Well, what about this? What about that? This morning, I want to address what are the anxieties that keep us from so often using Words And Peter actually answers a lot of our objections right here in this one verse in the middle of our reading this morning, verse 15, when he says this, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that is within you. You see, Peter assumes that when we act truly Christ-like, it will invite questions. People will wonder, why are you so different? We talk a lot in this church about, about how the kingdom of God is so countercultural. When we start actually living counterculturally Christ-like lives, it can't help but invite questions. And so Peter teaches us how to approach sharing about Jesus and in his teaching, just in that one little sentence, really, he answers a number of the objections and the anxieties that we have. So let's start by talking about Jesus. And then we'll get to the objections. See, one of, one of the, the um, well, let's start here. One of the comforts we can enjoy is that the story of God, the story of Jesus, is itself a powerful story. Like there's power, just the message of Jesus itself is incredibly power, powerful. Again, the shorthand we use for this is gospel, which means good news. There are a thousand different ways to talk about the news of God, the gospel. Probably one of the most common, and this, this is a good start. I'm, I'm not knocking this at all. Jesus died for our sins. I mean, think just for a moment about how powerful that message is, that Jesus died for your sins and for my sins. At its core, the message of Jesus is really simple. It's that the world is broken, and we individually are broken, and God came and gave his life to fix the world and to fix us, to make all things new. It's completely contrary to every other religion and faith system out there. I don't know of another one that's like it. 
Because every other religion, every other faith system, every other whatever you want to call it says you need to be better. You need to be good enough. There's a giant scale, right? We always think about the scale, and it's someday God, whatever God you're talking about, will weigh your good works and your bad works and hope your good works outweigh the bad. You just need to be good enough. Christianity says you can't be good enough, but God was good enough for you, even though you can't. Put it this way, every other religion says you have to somehow reach up to God. You have to climb the ladder to get to God. Christianity says God has reached down to us, that God descended the ladder to be with us in our brokenness. This is what Peter is even talking about in verse 18 here when he says, Christ, the righteous, died for the unrighteous. That's the heartbeat, that's the core of the gospel, and it's stunningly powerful. In what other system of belief does the powerful give himself for the weak? And what other system does God give his life for sinners? I don't know of any. I don't know of any. And Paul, I'm sorry, Peter teaches us that this message itself, however imperfectly you stumble your way through, just the message itself has power. And that's a great help in answering one of the most common objections that we hear, which is, well, what if I get the story wrong? What if I get the story wrong? What if I miss a key detail? What if I share wrong details? I'm, Chris, I'm, you're the pastor. Like, you're trained in this. I'm not a theologian. What if I stumble? What if I stutter? What if I make an absolute fool out of myself? What if I botch the message about Jesus? And because I botched it, now that person won't go to heaven. If I were feeling a little cheeky, I might respond first by saying, well, how will they hear about Jesus if you don't even try to tell them? But more to the point, what that betrays is actually an implicit assumption that it's your responsibility to save somebody, and it's not. It's not. It is not your job to convert or to make a Christian or a follower of Jesus out of anybody. That's God's job. When it comes to sharing our faith in Christ, all God asks us to do is to share as imperfectly as we can and leave the results up to him. You notice what Peter doesn't say? He doesn't say, always be prepared to convert the next person you meet. No. He says, be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have. An answer implies that there was a question, that somebody else reached out to you and said, tell me more, that they want to know more. And all he says is give an answer. He says nothing about how good that answer even is. He says nothing about the results. Just be ready to give an answer. I have a friend who used to work for a Christian group on a college campus, and one of his jobs was to train college students to share about their faith in Jesus with other college students. And so they were training students. They were doing this, this part of his job, training students and teaching them, and the best way you learn is by doing, and so he was watching one student give what he called the worst gospel presentation he's ever heard. I mean, this guy botched it. 
Like he said things about God that are not true about God. And there's some really important details about Jesus that he completely forgot. And the person with whom he was sharing decided right then and there, I'm going to follow Jesus. And they came to Christ. What? Like, he did the worst, like, the worst presentation he possibly could have done. And what happened? It worked. Why? Because the results aren't up to us. The results aren't up to you. And God is not only working through your words, he's working in that person's heart as well. So what if you get it wrong? Are you saying that God can't actually work through your imperfection? No, of course not. We do what we can, and we leave the results up to God, even if we botch it. Even if, and this always happens. I don't think it's possible for this not to happen. Even when you walk away from that awkward conversation and think, man, I wish I'd said that differently. Oh, I wish I'd thought of that. I wish I'd skipped over that part. The power of the gospel is not in your words, it's in the word of God, in Jesus Christ himself. In other words, it's not in your presentation, it's in the story itself, it's in the message, it's in the news of a God who loves us enough to give his life for us. That's powerful. Now the gospel itself is a weird story. Just the the notion that God would give himself for those whom he's created, that's weird, which gives rise to a second objection, which is, well, what if people think I'm weird? What about that? First, I would direct us to the first part of verse 15, when Peter says, in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. To be frank, if Christ is your Lord, then nothing and no one else can be your Lord, including whether other people approve of you or think you're normal or not. No one can serve two masters, Jesus says. I would add that it can help. I find a lot of help in this. When I'm sharing about my faith with somebody, I almost always start this way now. I start by saying like, this is gonna sound weird, but. Because then at least I said it's weird, not them. I don't feel like I'm being accused. And when you think about it, like our whole faith is weird. God became human. God died. That the only way to eternal life runs through a sacrificial death. Those are all completely backwards ideas, at least in our culture, especially in a postmodern 21st century culture. So in some sense, we really shouldn't be surprised when people think that our faith is strange. We really shouldn't be surprised. And Peter reminds us in verse 17, he says, it's better, by the way, if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And I don't want to necessarily equate people thinking you're a little strange or a little off with with deep suffering, but maybe that's still helpful. Now, there's a third objection we often hear, which is this. What if I don't have all the answers? This is related to the first, but it's a little bit different. What if they stump me with a really hard question? I have a lot of, I have a lot of theological questions myself. I don't know that much theology. I haven't been trained. What if they ask me a question I can't answer? Well, again, notice what Peter says and notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, 
Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you a meaningful theological question about God. He doesn't say one thing about theology. He doesn't say one thing about doctrine. He teaches, always be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. So someone asks you, you know, hey, when I've noticed, you know, when it, when it, gets, when it just hits the fan at work, or when, when the, the CEO or the manager is just flipping out, how come, how come everyone else can be flipping out and you're, you're somehow just so calm? You see, they're not actually asking you about your theology in that question, are they? So you don't have to answer with theology. Just answer their question. You might say something like, I don't know. I don't, and to be honest, I don't always feel that calm. I'm glad you think I am. <laughs> and this might sound crazy, but I'm a, I'm a Christian, and the more I know Jesus, the less anxious I get over time. And I can't, I can't even explain it. I just know that somehow knowing Jesus is changing me. They might ask something like, how can you be so patient with that one person that everybody else thinks is so annoying? And maybe an answer goes something like, you know, I, um, I follow Jesus, and I believe Jesus is really patient with me. And if I'm going to follow him and be like him, then I, I think he calls me to, to be patient. And I'm not perfect, I, but I think Jesus is just changing me. Do you see? Like this, this is actually really, really, really important culturally in a postmodern culture, in a secular culture, in a culture where under, in, 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 ports, in New England broadly, do you know this? A couple years ago, the Barna Group did a survey that found that New Hampshire was the second least churched state in America. You know what number one is? Maine. And number three, Vermont. So like we've got a lock right up here in the Northeast. And in an incredibly secular culture, this actually, I know that a lot of us struggle with this, in a secular culture where people almost don't seem to care about objective truth. Well, how do I share the truth about God in a culture that doesn't care about objective truth? Peter tells us right here, they're not asking about truth. So don't, don't answer a question they're not asking, answer the question they are asking. They're asking, they're asking your subjective experience. Tell me about the hope that you have. In our culture today, you know what speaks louder than objective truth? Your experience. So use it. Use it, because nobody will argue. They might argue whether there even is an objective truth. Fine, we can have that conversation later, but they won't argue with this is what's happened to me. Do you see? Does that make sense? The old-fashioned word for this is testimony. And testimony does not mean that you know everything there is to know about a topic. It doesn't mean you're an expert. You don't have to be an expert. It just means you, you say, this is what I saw. This is what I've experienced. In a court case, right, a lawyer calls a court case in a trial, and the lawyer calls a witness, and, and the witness gives a testimony. All the witness does is answer a few questions about what did you see? What was your experience? The witness's job is actually... This is really important. The witness's job is not to piece the whole case together. 
The witness's job is not to make sense of everything and present a grand unified theory of anything. The witness's job is literally just to say, well, here's what I saw. Peter teaches us, always be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. They're asking your experience, so share your experience. I've shared this story before. I know, I think I've shared it twice in the past like year. It's been so powerful for me. I'm going to share it again. I heard a pastor tell a story of a woman who had just started coming to his church. This was a church in Manhattan. And he asked what brought her, and she said, I had this, this incredible experience at work. He said, tell me more. She said, well, I have, I have a really, like just one of these dream jobs that I just got for one of the major three-letter television networks. And I made a Early on, I made a big mistake, like a six-figure mistake. It was going to cost the company hundreds of thousands of dollars to fix. And my boss's boss called me, not even my boss, but my boss's boss called me into his office, and I just knew I was going to lose my job. And he said, you know, your boss, you know, between us, went to bat for you, so I'm not going to fire you. She said, I didn't understand that. So I went to my boss, and I said, why? like, this is, this is New York. Like, why did you... This is where people take credit for other people's successes and blame other people for their own failures. And you just took credit for my failure. Why did you, why did you go to bat for me? And her boss said, I'm a Christian. And in my faith, we believe that God paid the price for our errors. And so because I follow Jesus, I try to do the same. He didn't, he didn't give a long theological, like two sentences. And just through that, this woman began attending a church and became a follower of Jesus herself. Now, it was preceded by actions. Preach the gospel always. And it was followed up with words, simple words, really. When necessary, when, not if. When necessary, use words. What's the reason for the hope? Why? When somebody asks you why, what's your reason? This is what Peter is talking about here. It's simply being aware. Like, he's not saying you have to know the whole Bible. He's not saying you have to have read the whole Bible. Certainly that you don't have to understand the whole Bible, because Lord knows I don't either. All he's asking is, has Jesus changed your life? Is Jesus changing your life still? Do you still see God's hand in your life? Can you just talk about that? Can you just, and, and, and you know what, and if it's just as surprising to you as it is to anybody else, say that. I'm, I don't, I don't, I'm surprised too. We're so afraid that somebody will argue with our Bible knowledge, but almost never will anybody argue with your personal experience. You don't have to have all the answers. Just, just be willing to point to the one who is the answer who is the way and the truth and the life and trust that God is working in their lives as well. And if somebody asks you a question you can't answer, you say, I don't know. That's a good question. I don't have an answer for that. Let's find out together. Now, what if you do all of that and then they just respond really poorly? Or what if they don't respond at all? One Kind of two answers to that. First, if, if they started the conversation, if they asked you what's the reason, why, why is this part of your life so hopeful, so unusual, so countercultural, 
they, they're going to respond. Like, they, they want to know. Do you believe, by the way, that, that people want to know about Jesus? There's a longing in our hearts, and it's expressed in a lot of different ways, but there's a longing in each of our hearts for purpose, for security, for fulfillment. There's a longing in each of our hearts to be known. We all want to be deeply known. We all want to be deeply loved. And we know that Jesus answers each of those longings better than anything else in the world. We know that Jesus fulfills those longings. If people long for those things, whether they know it or not, do you believe that they're actually longing for Jesus? And maybe they're just waiting for someone to point them to the answer they've been looking for so much. If they start the conversation, it's unlikely that they're going to respond poorly or just turn their back and walk away. But you know what? What if they do? The results aren't up to you. You haven't failed. It's not your job to make somebody else a follower of Jesus. Jesus says to each of us, follow me. And each of us decides on our own, either yes, I will, or no, I won't. But at the end of the day, you're really not responsible for anybody else. When I visit folks in um, hospitals and nursing homes, one of my favorite things to do has become uh, to ask, anytime if I'm sitting with you know, someone in our church and a doctor or a nurse or even a housekeeper, whoever comes in, and they do, I, it's the best with doctors, no offense to those of you who are physicians, there are a few of you, but I'm sure this is not you, but some of the ones I see, they're just very, very, very businesslike, and, and, uh, and I love to just jump in and say, hey, you know, I'm from so-and-so's church. I actually don't usually say I'm the pastor, because I've learned that's the quickest way to kill a conversation. Uh, so um, I just say, I'm from so-and-so's church. We're Christians. We're going to pray together. Can we pray for you? Can we pray for you? And you know, nine times out of 10, you know what they say? They say, nope, I'm all set. <laughs> that great New England phrase, I'm all set, nope. But every so often they say yes. Um, five years ago now, I think five years, I know it's five years ago, I was sitting with one of our members at Portsmouth Hospital. A young doctor came in. Um, he, was, he, was overwhelmed. he was overwhelmed, he was overworked. And I did, you know, we're, we're Christians, we're going to pray together, can we pray for you? And he, he just stopped dead in his tracks, and his eyes got wet, and all of a sudden he asked me if, if I would hug him. <laughs> wow, that, that escalated. And, uh, and he said, yeah, please, please pray for me. I would, it would be so meaningful if you would pray for me. And so we did. And I didn't think a lot, I mean, it was meaningful in itself, but I didn't think a whole lot of it after that. And then it, that night I'd been in a meeting, and then I got out of the meeting, and I saw I had a voicemail on my phone. And I guess I must have given him my card or something. Somehow he got my cell phone number, and he called me and left me a voicemail just to tell me again how meaningful and how powerful that was for him. And I've kept that voice, that's still on my phone from 2018. I've kept that voicemail on my phone to remind, and actually, cool story, do we, I'm going to tell it anyway. One of you told me, I'm not going to say who, but one of you has told me that this doctor has been your doctor recently. Like, who knows the work that the Lord is doing in his life? I keep that voicemail to remind me, you never know when and how God is going to move. We never know. 
To live a Christ-like life is intensely countercultural. We, we know this. And as we live a Christ-like life, people, it's just inevitable. They're going to start wondering. Read the Sermon on the Mount. Read Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and tell me that that doesn't fly in the face of everything we hear of how we should live today. People will wonder, and eventually they will ask. And when they do, we get a chance to share with them the, the reason for the hope that we have. It's called the good news. I mean, who, who doesn't like to share good news? We don't like to share bad news. Some of us do. That's weird. But like, we don't, but who, everybody likes to share good news, right? Question of discernment and how we bring it up. But I will say this. Remember, Peter's not talking about you starting the conversation. And I don't, I don't think there's a single workplace in America where it's illegal to answer a simple question. It's one of the luxuries that we enjoy in 21st century America. Peter's not talking about shouting it from every rooftop or setting up your little milk crate or soapbox in the town square. He's just saying, when people ask, be ready. Be ready. I wonder, you know, what if, what if we started praying? This is a dangerous prayer. What if we started praying for opportunities? What if we started praying that people would ask? If you're going to pray that, you better start working on an answer. Because <laughs> like, that's a prayer that God loves to answer. But what if we started praying? Not that God would help us to even have to start the conversation. How do you start? Well, I've been, you know. That... No, but, but somebody else to say, I can't even put my finger on it. It's just there's something different. There's a calm there's a hope, there's a peace, there's a joy, there's a love, there's a gentleness and a kindness. This is all just the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 about you. What if we prayed that people would notice us preaching the gospel silently as it were and that they would ask you to, you, to use words? And for that matter, how would you answer that? If somebody says, tell me about your hope, how would you answer? How has the good news of Jesus the Christ, God who put skin on and lived and died and rose again, how has that changed your life? How is it changing your life? People long to know about Jesus. They may not realize it. They may have all sorts of objections to organized religion. And when I ask them, tell me about your objections, and they do, I usually think and say, like, I have to say, if that's what organized religion is, I don't want anything to do with that either. They may have all sorts of objections to organized religion and to this, that, and the other, but they long for Jesus. It's our joy that he invites us to share his good news. Amen.